Well, if you have your copy of God's perfect and holy word, and I hope you do, please open up to uh, the book of Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. We've been going through uh, this first round of, of series in Genesis. Uh, really, it's going to be the first 11 chapters, and, and uh, we'll continue on with that for the next couple of months. Um, so if you want to read ahead uh, for next week, chapter 4 would be a great, uh, a great thing to read through before next week. And so we're going to finish out chapter 3 today and, and see what God's response is uh, to what happened in the first part of Genesis with the temptation. So uh, allow me to read in Genesis chapter 3, uh, starting in verse... Uh, well, you know what? I'll back up a, a, a verse just to provide some context. Chapter 3, verse 7 to the end of the chapter. This is what the, the Holy Spirit uh, wrote through uh, the pen of Moses. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, Well, the woman whom you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. The Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent, he, de he deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and, the, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain shall you bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles uh, it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for you for out of it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return the man called his wife's name eve because she was the mother of all living and the lord god made for adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them then the lord god said behold the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil now, lest he reach out his hand and also take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man 
And at the east of the garden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's pray together. Father, would you help us today to see the gravity of our sin, to see the gravity of uh, what life is like in a cursed world, but yet also help us, Father, to cling ourselves to the only remedy that is available to us to reverse this curse, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, would, would Jesus get glory and honor and worship and praise and glory that is, that is due his name today? And it's in his ma- uh, magnificent name that we pray. Amen. So we've been going through uh, the first three chapters so far in Genesis, and and really we've seen uh, this huge contrast. Uh, The first two chapters described God's good creation. Everything that was made was made by God, and after all was said and done, after everything was created, God said that it wasn't just good, that it was very good. That God's creation, in his declaration, is a very good creation. But last week we saw something went wrong. Something happened. Temptation entered into the world through this serpent. And the goodness, the sweetness that Adam and Eve knew of life suddenly was was gone and turned bitter. And we're presented then in this text here with the answers, the big the answers to the big questions in life. Why is there so much pain and suffering in this world? Why is there so much disease? Why is there so much interpersonal uh, conflict? Why is life so hard? And as last week we looked at the roots of temptation and how temptation uh, grows in our hearts and, and ends up having fruition into sin today, we are going to uh, answer the question of, what is God's uh, response to sin? What does God think about all of this? It's one of the most uh, important questions that you and I can ask in our lives because every single one of us, without fail, is fallen. We all come from uh, different situations and different backgrounds in which we bring baggage into this world and we hurt others and we hurt ourselves. This is a huge question. And there are three things that we find in this text in which God responds to sin. And the first one is, is that God wants us to confess our sin openly and honestly. We put that a different way. God wants us to come clean with what's going on in our hearts and in our lives. You know, the check was in the mail. The deed had, in, had indeed been done. And there was no turning back here. Eve had succumbed to this temptation of the, ser- of the serpent. And Adam is just watching passively behind her as all of these things are going on. And the result, verse 7 tells us, that their eyes were opened, and they realized that they were naked. Whereas once they enjoyed this this sweet innocence of of a marriage that was uh, completely transparent, now sin had entered into the picture and everything was different. Not only were they naked physically and and now self-conscious about their bodies, 
but also they realize that they're emotionally and spiritually naked. They're vulnerable for the first time. They feel that weakness. They were afraid of what the other would think. They lacked intimacy between each other, and they were abundant in selfishness. And probably uh, in realizing the guilt of their nakedness, the text tells us that they attempted to cover up that nakedness. They figured that they can just cover up those parts of their lives that they are shameful of or that they don't want to think about. And then in covering themselves up, then everything's going to be okay. So they find these leaves that are the biggest leaves that you'll be able to find in the land of Canaan. They find these fig leaves and they, they sew them together and, and they uh, uh, put them as sort of, uh, I don't know, uh, a garment, whatever you want to call it, of leaves. And they cover their, what they think is their shame. And it probably worked for a time. The physical leaves were not only a covering of their body parts, but it was also symbolic of the way that they would live. It would be a a denial of their problem. See, you and I are not any different than Adam and Eve. You and I can commit any sort of sin that our minds can imagine, and we can try to cover it up. We can eliminate evidence, we can put on a good show, we can lie and act as if everything is just hunky-dory. Now think about that, that young man in Wisconsin that was just recently arrested for the kidnapping of Jamie Kloss. Think about all the things he did to cover his tracks. He ended up telling the, the, uh, the police that he would have totally gotten away with it if he would have done everything right. Well, what did he do? Well, he shaved his head before he went to Jamie Kloss's house. Shaved his body so that there would be no hair traces left there in order to have DNA evidence. He stole license plates and swapped them out with his car. This guy knew exactly what he was doing in order to cover his tracks. He forced her to hide under his bed while he had guests over And as sick as that crime is, it is a grand illustration of our own hearts. How often do we go out of the way to cover ourselves up? That lie we said, that thing we looked at, that that thing that we did... We make things look like everything is fine, and we may get away with it for a time. But, just like Adam and Eve, our coverings are insufficient to an ever-present, all-seeing, omniscient, holy God. We can hide our shame from our spouses, our children, from our parents, from our employers, uh, from our friends. We can even do it in such a way that we can convince ourselves that we are in the right or that this didn't happen. But we can't hide from God. Notice how everything changes when God shows up in verses 8 and 9. It says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. 
But the Lord God called out to the man, Where are you? You're hearing the rustling of the, the trees. Maybe the, the footsteps on the ground would have been a familiar occurrence for Adam and Eve up to this point. But this is different. Instead of running to the grove to get to God as quickly as they can to enjoy that fellowship with him, they instead run as fast as they can into the bushes in order to hide themselves. Up to this point, when they were with the serpent... God was seemingly not even in the picture, at least to those three. Which is oddly what happens in our lives too. They sin, yet at the moment that they realize that God is actually present with us. They fear, and then they flee. And isn't it true that when we become aware of our sin... The most natural feeling thing to do is to avoid God and to avoid others. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're going through some things, you're trying to wrestle through maybe something you're going through, maybe something that you've done. You're not putting God into the equation because you just simply don't want to have to deal with that. You don't want God in your business because you know what that means. You're putting fig leaves on the patterns in your life. Furthermore, you really don't want God in your life because if you have him, you know that you would be accountable for your actions. If you let him in to those areas of your heart, those areas of your mind and speech and behavior, you know that you are going to be exposed But our attempts to hide from God are absolutely futile. He is omniscient. He already knows what we've done. We can go to the highest heights, the psalmist tells us. Or we can go to the lowest depths. We can't escape him. He is inescapable and he's going to hold us accountable. So we might as well just come clean now. God calls Adam to account when he says, Where are you? And in asking that question, it's not as if God doesn't know where Adam is. He knows exactly where Adam is. Rather, in calling, where are you? He is drawing Adam out from behind the bushes so that Adam can come and and face God in the way that he is supposed to, to come to grips with what happened. But yet, God is not doing it as some sort of... uh, punishing monster. He's doing it very, very gently. He doesn't say, Adam, what is your problem? I gave you one job, one tree that you couldn't eat out of, and you blew it. What is wrong with you? God doesn't do that. Essentially, he says, Adam, my friend, where, where are you? Come out. It's a question that addresses Adam's heart rather than his physical location. Adam's answer then, notice that it centers directly on his fear. He doesn't answer God's question. He doesn't pop out of the bush and say, surprise, I'm here. Rather, in verse 10 he says, "I, I heard you, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid. 
And in his answer, he is, uh, he is doing something that we all do. He is making it sound like he's just a passive participant in avoiding the real reason why he is hiding. But God already knows what happened. And so he probes more with a question. He says, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat of this tree by which I commanded you not to eat? And notice Adam's response. Instead of a confession, he passes the buck. He shifts the blame. He first blames his wife. Instead of confessing her to be the good helper that God had created her to be, he rather labels her as a hindrance, as a liability, and as a danger. And second, notice also that he implicitly blames God in this. In verse 12, he essentially says, God, the woman that you gave to me, this good gift that you were supposed to be uh, uh, for me, well, your good gift stinks. She put me in this position. This lady has been nothing but trouble ever since you took her out of my rib. But notice that Eve also takes suit here. Eve does the same exact thing. Uh, the Lord God goes to her next and says, Is this true? Is what your husband's saying here correct? To which she doesn't take any responsibility. She passes it off too. And she says, Look, this isn't my fault. It's the serpent. He deceived me. I was just completely innocent in this. I was just a bystander. I fell for his ruse. She's a victim. Adam's a victim. Nobody's taking responsibility for anything. How familiar is this story to our lives and our culture? Many people will blame God and others for their misfortunes and their sin. Many of us see ourselves as victims rather than sinners in need of rescue. It was my upbringing, the abuse that I received as a child. It was my poor education, my parents' parenting style, uh, and their decisions. We'll pass the buck and say, I don't make enough money in the job. I don't, I don't make enough, and so I, I had to cheat on my taxes in order to get a better return. My spouse doesn't fulfill me, and so I had to go and find someone else. All of us happen to be bystanders in the very evil by which we create. We'll see it in our marriages. We'll see it in our employment. We'll see it in our homes. We will see it in our community involvement with our children. We cannot escape it, so we must deal with it. And we must face it. Friends, God wants you to confess your sin openly and honestly. But many of us instead, we want to tamper with the evidence. We want to sweep it under the rug. We want to present ourselves as victims, shift the blame. But God, here's the funny thing. God doesn't need evidence to convict us. Why? Because he's a witness. He sees what is going on. 
And he will not only be a witness in our case, but he's also the judge and the jury. So what are we supposed to do? The first thing that I think we need to do is that we need to come to grips with our condition. We need to come to grips with our fallenness. And we need to confess and not excuse uh, or not blame. Our lives would be so much better and so much freer if we were just open and honest with ourselves and with God and with those that we sin against. Secondly, in light of what I just said about not passing the blame on to others, I'm going to walk back from that just a bit and say that we ought to pass the blame in one, uh, in one way. And that is that we should pass the blame to Jesus. Or another way to put that is that we ought to rest our blame on Jesus. See, here's a man who uh, never tried to pass the blame. Well, he was sinless. He had no reason to pass the blame. He was absolutely morally perfect. He never needed to shift responsibility. But rather, as our sinless Savior, the one who never committed a sin, the one who lived perfectly for us, the one that died uh, perfectly for us, when he was on the cross, stretched out his arms and said, pass the blame on to me. I freely will take the punishment and the responsibility for your mistakes and your sins. The buck stops at Jesus. Have you stopped playing the victim? Have you stopped passing or shifting blame? Have you admitted your guilt is completely yours and no one else's? And if so, have you taken God's offer of grace and passed that responsibility on to Jesus, who takes the weight of our condition, our sins, our thoughts, our words upon himself and freely takes the punishment for us. Trust in Jesus to do that today. But second, we must also realize the seriousness of the consequences. Realize the seriousness of sin's consequences. It was a scene that perhaps has played out in more of uh, more parents' lives than I, uh, than I or we choose to admit. I was at the grocery store one day, and in front of me was uh, a young mother with her unruly toddler, and obviously there's all sorts of goodies and snacks that are always in those little aisles that are next to the uh, cash register, which are always so tempting. The kid was obviously wanting this thing, and so he goes and, and touches this item, and the mother just gently says, um, Honey, no, no touch. We're not going to get anything. Well, yeah, so the kid, you know, waits till she looks away, and then what does he do? He goes and he touches it again. And so she looks at him, and it gets a little more forceful. Mommy said, no touch. Okay, well, Mommy said, no touch. Well, it sounds to the kid like she's sort of inviting a battle here, right? And so she looks away, and the kid sees that as an opportunity to go and really just grab at it. Well, what happens then? The mom just explodes. What did I tell you? I said no touch. If you touch that thing again, you are not going to get a treat when we are done here because you are not listening to mommy. Well, now the kid's got a challenge, right? 
He wants to see if mom is good on her word. She looks away, and he just flat out grabs it, and her response is totally predictable, almost without fault. Okay, I told you that if you did that, you would not get a treat. So don't touch it again, or you won't get a treat. And this sort of thing goes on and on. The volume level, you can tell, goes up. Her frustration goes up. But what happens at the end? As she's walking out of the grocery store, she's got a frustrated look on her face, and the kid has a smile because he has a treat in his hand. (laughs) Happens more often than we choose to admit. There are a lot of parents out there, and perhaps some of us included, that are all bark and, and are no bite. They like to make idle threats in order to modify some behavior of the child, but when the behavior uh, doesn't, mani- you know, doesn't manifest that they want, they get frustrated, and the kid knows that if he just holds out long enough, then he's going to end up getting what he wants. This is perhaps the attitude that Adam had in the garden after they both took of the fruit. Adam stood by and wondered if God's word was, was mum. Sure, God said to him that in the day that they eat of the fruit, they will surely die. But yet, here's his wife. She's taken of the fruit, and yet she is, uh, she's st- her heart is still beating, and he's still breathing. So, maybe God isn't good on his word. But God, however, always is good on his word. What Adam is not expecting is that God is going to give them grace in putting off physical death, but also God has a radical response to disobedience. In his sweeping judgment, God is making clear that sin has consequences. In verses 14 through 19, we sort of get the framework for God's judgment on all of these characters that are involved. Uh, judgments that would be echoed down even to today that we see. God begins with the serpent. He curses the serpent above all the animals. Not that the other animals are cursed, but uh, this is a way of magnifying what the serpent did and the, the seriousness that he, that he did. And indeed, we, we, we see that curse living out today, right? Nobody likes snakes. Snakes are creepy. Anyone that like snakes? It's weird. Unless you're Jake the snake or something like that. But um, he further curses him to an eternity of crawling on his belly and eating dust. Now, let's not be confused here. Uh, this, this, uh, this text is not saying that a serpent once had arms and legs and uh, that now it's some evolutionary process. This is not a treatise on evolution. That's not what is, what is going on here. Rather, God is saying that his present state is and will always be one of humiliation. This is a humiliating thing. His tongue will constantly be touching the ground as he smells for food. Yeah, snakes smell with their tongues. Did you know that? It's pretty cool. Not that snakes are cool, but it's pretty cool to smell with your tongue. When he eats mice, he will be humiliated. And because of uh, the serpent here is Satan incognito, God also gives him a spiritual curse in verse 15. 
He says that this will, there will be constant strife with him and Eve throughout all of their days. And in a grand sense, because the, the strife is going to be between her offspring and his offspring, what is basically happening here is that this judgment opens up the door for a long and lasting struggle between good and evil in our world. And though we might not see it now, the way that the world is going, verse 15 is actually a verse of hope. It's a verse of hope. Uh, though there will be contention, notice the word in verse 15, the word offspring. Notice that word is singular. It points toward the one who will be of God that will one day undo and destroy the works of Satan. From here on out, throughout the rest of the scriptures, you will see a war that ensues between the offspring of Eve and the offspring of the serpent. There's always this constant overtone in the Old Testament of, is this going to be the one that will crush the head of the snake? We see it in Seth. We'll see that coming up here. We see it in Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the patriarchs. And we see it through the kingly line, David and Solomon and, and all of these uh, different people, though. And these hopes in these men, however, subsided uh, due to their sin. They were ultimately pointing to the one who would crush the head of the serpent. Jesus Christ, who on the cross, when he was dying and in his death, essentially uh, got his heel bruised, but yet he crushed the head of that serpent in his death. A death that could not hold him. And this is the good news of the Bible. This is the good news for your life. This is where everything in your life comes together. God's judgment doesn't stop at the serpent, however. Adam and Eve are culpable for their actions. Look in uh, verse 16. God moved on to Eve. Eve's judgment, notice it's not necessarily a curse here is one that would go against her God-given roles. Childbearing and child-rearing and supporting her husband. God said that childbirth from now on is, well, they didn't experience childbirth before this, but childbirth is going to be very painful. And not only will the delivery process go, but any parent that's raised any child knows that raising a child is difficult. It involves a lot of pain. And if, there, uh, if that weren't enough, he says that the judgment will bring marital strife. Whereas her God-given role was to be his, Adam's helper and to come alongside of him and, and support him in the work that he was doing in, in leading the home, she would now try to usurp his authority and take charge here. When it says that your desire shall be for him, this isn't talking about a sexual desire. This is a desire to take authority that was inherently not hers. It's going to bring marriage problem because the roles are going to be confused. And, and ladies, I know that it's, it's, it's going against the cultural norms here, but if we want to get our homes and reverse the curse in our faith, seek to let your husband lead your house. Even if he's not at that point, Be willing to yield uh, to his leadership. It is God's creative design for your families. Yes, that means there's responsibility on him. You can only choose to change you. 
But through your following and God's uh, roles here, you can do great things for your husband to lead your family, to lead you, to, to help you see Christ, to grow in Christ. And, oh, it's just God's good plan for us. And he doesn't stop there. He turns to Adam, the one who bears the responsibility for this mess. The reason for his judgment is not only just taking of the fruit, but notice that it's for obeying the voice of his wife and not God's. And the result then is that the ground is cursed, which essentially means that work is going to be hard. Work is now going to be difficult. There's going to be weeds, there's going to be pests, there's going to be droughts. Verse 19 says, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Work is going to be hard. And these judgments here are just the, the tip of the iceberg in human sinfulness. We're going to be going into chapters here in Genesis where we are going to see uh, the depths of human depravity and some of the most heinous sins that we can imagine. Uh, we, we're going to see murder and, and rape and incest and homosexuality and enslavement and, and, and so on and so forth. The Bible, friends, the Bible is not PG. But because it's not PG, it can relate to you and where you're at in your life. And that is a great help and hope. God is a God whom, though he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, will by no means clear the guilty. Because of the serpent's temptation, Adam and Eve tried calling God's bluff. But God's holiness and, just, and justice does not allow them to get off the hook. Their thoughts and their actions have consequences, and so do ours. But there is hope. And that's our third point, is that we need to trust God to cover our guilt and our shame. Trust God to cover our guilt and shame. When we examine the depths of our sinfulness, honestly, it can be quite overwhelming. When I look at my past and sometimes the way I think, it's so easy to get depressed. And many of us are probably that way too. There's nobody in this room that can say that they have no part in sinful humanity. It's absolutely universal. But when we drink deeply from Genesis chapter 3, we find that not only was God uh, the holy creator and sustainer and judge of the universe, but that he's also the God who loves his creation. And he loves his people more than all of his creation as well. And furthermore, when we look at, chapter, at, at verses 20 through 24, we find a God who will go to extreme lengths to bring us back to him, to redeem his creation. And the hope, that, uh, the hope doesn't just fall on God's promise of the one who would come and crush the head of the snake, but it also falls on what God would do for them right then and there. Look at verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. 
See, when we try to cover up our guilt, when we try to cover up our shame and our sin, it only creates more guilt and shame. God sees us nakedly. He, uh, he knows what we've done. There's no use in trying to cover up our tracks. But here, notice that it is God. That it is God who ends up covering Adam and Eve's sin so that he no longer sees it. Notice that he covers them with skins. Whereas Adam and Eve, they took leaves of inanimate trees and sewed them up and tried to cover themselves. God takes the life of an animal, slaughters it, skins it, and covers them. And this isn't some sort of covering that is some skimpy fig leaf. Rather, the text uh, alludes to the fact that this skin that they're wearing is a head-to-toe covering to cover all that has transpired. In a sense, the punishment of death that they deserved then transferred to an animal, and that death covered their shame. And because of that substitution, their sin now is covered in the sight of God. And this idea would later be picked up in the Exodus when the Israelites were uh, uh, in bondage to Egypt and, and God tells the Israelites every home has to slaughter a lamb, take the blood and wipe it on their doors because death is going to be coming tonight and he's going to wipe out all the firstborn of the Egyptians. But anyone that has the blood of the lamb covered over their door, they will uh, have death passed over them and they will live. The idea ends up showing up in a system of sacrifice for the Israelite community where the slaughter of a lamb would atone uh, for, their, for their sin and cover them. And all of these images then are looking forward to the day when a man would be in the desert, people would be flocking to him, and he would look at one person and would say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And now the very one who is the, the, the snake uh, crusher was also put on a cross to bleed on our behalf. And through the blood, and though the blood of lambs and goats merely covered the people's sin, Jesus' blood completely blots it out of our lives. It's not just covered up. It's gone. It's taken care of. Completely wiped clean. This chapter ends in a very odd way in verses 22 through 24. God banishes Adam from the garden, basically removing his presence from them, which is about the worst curse that we can have, to not have fellowship with God. And he does this in order that Adam couldn't take of this tree of life and live forever. But where we see judgment here, there is grace. God is not going to allow Adam, in his sinful condition, to take of this tree of life and live forever in that sinful condition. 
what a miserable eternity that would be. So instead, God gave to Adam the grace of death so that one day in his death, he might truly live in the righteousness of Jesus Christ who would come. It's his only hope, and it's our only hope. God does not desire to leave you in the misery of your sin and this life forever. God will give us the grace of death. There is hope. There is restoration. And there is resurrection. And it is all found in Jesus Christ. Whatever you're going through, by faith, He will one day make it right. By trusting in Him, you are truly taking of this tree of life. Maybe you see that your life isn't going in the direction that you had planned, or maybe the direction that you know that it shouldn't go, and you need to rededicate your life to Christ today. Take of the fruit of that tree of life in Jesus Christ. Trust in Him. Maybe today you're here, and you've never placed your hope in Jesus Christ. And you realize that the patterns of your life are not going to bring you anywhere other than destruction. Come to this tree. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 34 tells us to taste and see that the Lord is good. And instead of hiding in our sin and our shame, Psalm 34 takes that a bit further. It says, Taste and see that Jesus is good. Blessed is he who hides in him. Folks, take all of your sin, take all of your shame and guilt. Go to Jesus Christ and hide in him today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we... We don't necessarily like messages with hard truths like these. But Lord, we are sinful and in need of rescue. And Lord, though we try to rescue ourselves by covering our sin, covering up our shame, Lord, you know, but yet you love us. And so, Father, I pray today that we would all go to the tree of life that is in Jesus Christ. That we would taste and see that indeed the Lord is good and that we hide in Him. Father, if there's anyone here that has been running from You or life isn't going in the way that it should, I pray that You would be calling them back today and that they would re-put their trust in You. Lord, I pray that if there's someone here that's never received you, they've never made you Lord and Savior of their life, they're still living on the throne of their heart, Lord, I pray that they would dethrone themselves today and that they would put Jesus on the throne of their heart. Lord, help us as a community to build these people up, to, to know you, to live for you and what that looks like. 
And Lord, as we celebrate this time of communion together, would you help us to remember what Jesus has done for us in that? And it's in Jesus' name that I ask this. Amen. Well, on the first Sunday of every month here at Emmanuel, we come together as a, as a family of believers.